Hello. Hello. Yes. Who's this? Well, who are you trying to reach? What number is this? Well, what number are you trying to reach? I don't know. Well, I think you have the wrong number. Do I? It happens. Take it easy. Hello? I'm sorry. I guess I dialed the wrong number. Well, then why'd you dial it again? To apologize. You're forgiven. Bye now. Wait, wait, don't hang up. What? I want to talk to you for a minute. You'd have to rate me five stars on Spotify first. <laughs> Bye now. Hello? Why don't you want to talk to me? Who is this? You tell me your name and I'll tell you mine. <laughs> I don't think so. Well, then what are you up to tonight? Well, it's Halloween. Obviously, I'm going to be watching a scary movie. What's your favorite scary movie? Hmm, that's a tough one. I don't know. I guess if I'd have to choose, I'd go with Georgia Rule. You know, that one with Lindsay Lohan? Oof, yeah, I saw that one. You're right, that was scary. <laughs> Seriously. So, really, what is your name? Why do you want to know my name so bad? Because I want to know who I'm watching record their podcast right now. What? What did you just say? I said I want to know what podcast I'm listening to right now. Oh, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Diving Board Podcast. I'm your host, Jill, and welcome to Diving Board Halloween. I am so happy to have you little ghouls here listening to the spooky session of Diving Board today. I'm so happy that it's Diving Board Halloween. Spooky season is one of my favorite times of the year. It's just so fun to me. I love being scared. If you listen to Diving Board October last year, you know that I'm definitely a scaredy cat, but... I love doing it to myself. It's just, it's fun. I love this time of year. So thank you so much for joining me. I'll be honest, though, I didn't know at first if I was going to do Diving Board October, Diving Board Halloween again this year, because those episodes last year kind of flopped. Um, not many people listened to them, which I completely understand. Most people don't listen to Diving Board for spooky stuff. You listen for kind of fun pop culture scandals from the 2000s. I absolutely get it. But I just had so much fun doing them. So I was kind of bummed that they didn't go over well. So I was like, oh, should I do it again this year? And while I was thinking about it, some amazing divers reached out to me and they're like, oh, are you going to be doing Diving Board October again this year? And I was like, oh, I'm going to be honest with you. Not many people listened. And they're like, well, we really, really enjoyed it. So I really hope you do it again this year. And I was like, okay, there's my answer. It may not be quantity, but it is total quality because the divers are amazing. So after I heard that, 
I was like, absolutely, we're going to do it again this year. And I'm looking forward to getting into this episode because I actually had this planned last year, but then when I saw the performance of those episodes, I'm like, oh, maybe I shouldn't. So I'm excited that I didn't listen to the inner saboteur and just went for it because I'm really looking forward to getting into this episode today. Now, this episode revolves around a story that I really was interested in pretty much my entire life. Now, my dad was, and still is, he loves to tell stories. And I grew up um, in a really Polish, really superstitious household. So my dad wouldn't let us kind of watch scary stuff on TV because he said if we watched the scary stuff, that was inviting bad things into the house. So <laughs> so we were never allowed to watch it. But of course, when you're told as a kid not to do something, that's all you want to do. So my sister and I would watch Are You Afraid of the Dark or Goosebumps? Shout out to the episode The Mask where the girl can't get the mask off. I was obsessed with that as a kid, but I was also really scared. I'm still afraid of Are You Afraid of the Dark? It's scary still as an adult. But so we weren't allowed to watch it, but we still would. And um, luckily, nothing was invited into the house. Knock wood, thank God. But um, um, my dad would still like to tell scary stories, even though um, we weren't allowed to watch that stuff. I guess him telling scary stories, we were safe. So um, he would tell us stories of like his favorite episodes of The Twilight Zone or his favorite unsolved mysteries or just things in history that were really scary or even stuff from his childhood where it would be like a casual childhood story and then it would turn into like the scariest thing ever. Does anyone else's parents do that? Like where they'll be just telling a story and then all of a sudden my dad's like, yeah, we were playing outside at night and we saw the ghosts of Civil War soldiers out in the yard. I was like, wait, what? (laughs) Like, just like really scary stuff. So he loved to tell stories. But like I said, he used to love to tell stories of um, his favorite unsolved mysteries. And one of the stories that we would talk and discuss all the time was the unsolved mystery of Natalie Wood. Whenever there was a special on television or anything that would come out, we would talk about it or we had our theories and he would say what he thought happened and and we would just kind of discuss the different points of the event. So I'm looking forward to you kind of discussing that today with you all, the story of Natalie Wood. Now, this is a story, like I said, that I've thought about for years since I was a kid, and I think there's a lot to discuss about it. Why I'm looking forward to getting into this is kind of twofold. For one, I get to talk about old Hollywood. On Diving Board, a lot of times I, well, pretty much every time, I'm talking about a early 2000s scandal that happened from when we were kids. And don't get me wrong, I love doing that. But old Hollywood is a time that I have always been completely enamored with. If you follow me on social media, on the Diving Board Instagram, anytime I go on a trip, I'm looking for where Frank Sinatra hung out, where old Hollywood stars kind of hung out. It's just something that I've always been so into. I would go to the library as a kid and just read all of these books on old Hollywood. I was a very old soul. I saw this meme recently and they were like, as a kid, were you an old soul or were you just an effing weirdo? Um, I was both. 
So (laughs) it was very strange, but it paid off because now I'm here and I know a lot of um, arguably useless information. But um, yeah, I'm excited to get into it because I can talk about that time period. But I also think this is a story. Obviously, at this point, it happened over 40 years ago. So there's a new generations that may not know about these stories. And these types of stories, because they happen so much longer. I know it happened in 1981. And in my mind, that's 20 years ago, but that's actually over 40 years ago, which is insane. But it happened a long time ago at this point that the younger generations may not know about it. And these stories kind of fade away. And I don't want that to happen. So I think at this point, we can honor Natalie Wood by talking about her story. So without further ado, we will get into it. This is the story of Natalie Wood. So Natalie Wood was a very famous actress for decades, starting actually in the 40s. Um, She started out her career as a child actor. She played the little girl um, in the original Miracle on 34th Street, which was a movie I grew up with, I was obsessed with. So she started her career out as um, the little girl in Miracle on 34th Street. And in her teen years, she was in many iconic films. She was in Rebel Without a Cause with James Dean and Ashley. She got older into her adulthood. She was also in West Side Story, Gypsy. She was um, a very revered actress in Hollywood. And when Natalie was 25 years old, she entered in her first marriage with Robert Wagner. And he was another well-known Hollywood actor. Robert Wagner, he just encompasses old Hollywood. Um, He was in movies with Marilyn Monroe, but he's acted for years. You may know Robert Wagner as, um, if you watch Austin Powers growing up, he was number two in Dr. Evil's like right-hand man, the one with the eye patch. That was, or is, Robert Wagner. So Robert Wagner and Natalie Wood, they were just one of those huge Hollywood couples. They were very idyllic. They were kind of the Brangelina of that era. But just like Brangelina, Robert and Natalie Wood, they they weren't as they seemed. Behind closed doors, there was a lot of stuff going on. And there was infidelity at play with Robert Wagner. And so the story goes, Natalie Wood came home one day and she found Robert Wagner in bed with somebody else. So in 1962, they divorced uh, after five years of marriage. And after the divorce, Natalie dated several different high-profile men. Most notably, she had a two-year-long relationship with uh, Warren Beatty. Now, you know Warren Beatty in this time was like the toast of the town in Hollywood. And when it comes to men, like when it comes to men, it doesn't really get much better than a young Warren Beatty, like my God, that is a very, very handsome man. So she rebounded quite well. So of course, imagine Robert Wagner, and your ex is rebounding with arguably one of the most handsome men in the history of like ever. It was hard for him, and he wound up actually moving to Europe because he couldn't even be around Natalie and Warren. He's like, I cannot live in LA. I'm going to go overseas because I can't even be around this. And Robert has also admitted to being just an extremely jealous man. He said once he was in such a jealous rage that he once followed Warren Beatty home and he had a loaded gun in his car. 
And he didn't actually do anything, but like he had that thought in his mind, like, I'm going to follow him home. I have this loaded gun. What's going to happen? And he just was a really, really jealous guy. So he knew he had to get out of Los Angeles. He just couldn't even stand that. And now we know Warren Beatty. He's like one of Hollywood's most notorious womanizers. You're So Vain by Carly Simon is supposedly written about um, Warren Beatty. So the relationship, it didn't go the distance. Warren Beatty liked to definitely um, play the field. So it wound up dissolving after a couple of years and Natalie wound up getting remarried and so did Robert. Natalie had her first child Natasha um, during her three-year marriage with Richard Gregson but as Natalie was raising her child and being a parent like you're supposed to do Richard Gregson um, got jealous of the attention that Natalie was giving Natasha. So he decided to have an affair and they got divorced in 1972. So a lot of um, male fragility here. But um, at this time, Robert Wagner's marriage was also ending. And Robert and Natalie kind of found themselves ending marriages at nearly the exact same time. And they also found themselves kind of gravitating towards each other again. And it wasn't long until they were back together and they were ready to remarry. And when friends and family would ask, like, what's what's the different now? They said, you know, we're older, we're wiser now, and we want to give our marriage another shot. So needless to say, the public was elated that these two stars were back together. It's such a romantic story. Like you think about, oh, you were younger and it didn't work out and you kind of forgave each other and came back together and you're married again. It's such an incredibly romantic love story. Sorry, side note, sorry if you hear that. It's my radiator. It is so cold out and I live in an old building. So that's what's that's turning it on. I think it kind of adds um, to the spookiness, maybe, but that's my delusion. Um, but again, them coming together, maybe they were soulmates. So they remarried in 1972 with a small wedding ceremony on Robert Wagner's yacht, The Splendor. And again, their relationship just seems so idyllic. But again, behind closed doors, it kind of told a different story. Friends and family said that Robert was, he was often jealous of Natalie. And after all, she was more famous than him and more successful as an actor. And Natalie's sister, Lana Wood, said sometimes she'd be over and Robert would make these just like snide comments about Natalie being the star. Lana said one time she was over there and Natalie and her couldn't decide where to go to dinner. So Natalie said, Robert, where do you suggest we go to dinner? And he goes, you decide, honey, you're the star. And it would just be like just these underhanded comments that kind of showed um, his jealousy. And, you know, this can be a common theme, especially in the 1970s, where um, the man has a problem when the woman is more successful, like the traditional power structure is totally thrown off. So some men have a really, really difficult time with this when their wife is more successful than them, especially when they work in the same field. So he had a really hard time with it. But Robert, he was landing more and more roles. He was becoming more famous. And Robert really liked the fame. 
Natalie, on the other hand, she didn't really care about the fame. She just really loved the craft of acting. And that was really her focus. She wanted to be around people who were just great actors. She didn't care how famous they were. She's like, you know, you're an incredible actor. I want to be around you and I want to learn from you. Being famous was honestly like sort of a byproduct for her. And at the end of the day, she just really wanted to be the best actor that she could be. Which is why when she landed a role in the movie Brainstorm in the late 70s, she was so excited. And she was really excited because she would get a chance to work with a young actor, Christopher Walken. Now, you know Christopher Walken. I mean, he's an absolute icon now. He, you know him from Pulp Fiction, Sleepy Hollow, Catch Me If You Can. I always loved when he would do The Continental on SNL. I always got like the biggest kick out of that as a kid, but I particularly loved him um, in the Weapon of Choice video, Fatboy Slim. I was obviously a music video kid as a kid. So if you haven't gathered by now, I was obsessed with that music video. I mean, Christopher Walken now is a cultural touchstone and like I said, an icon, but he was still a rising star in the 1970s and he was reaching new levels in 1978 when he won the Oscar for The Deer Hunter. And this really put him on the map and he was kind of becoming the shiny new toy. Everybody wanted to work with Christopher Walken. So this was the type of person Natalie wanted to work with and she was excited to work with him because he was so talented and he was becoming so revered in the industry. So she was really excited that she could star in a movie alongside with him because this would not only increase her fame, but she could be around him and really learn from him. And that's what really mattered the most to Natalie. And filming was going really well. And Natalie was really enjoying working with Christopher. Robert Wagner's career was also going well. It was continuing to flourish. He was landing a lot of different roles and all seemed well. All was quiet on the Western front. So Thanksgiving of 1981 rolled around and there was a brief hiatus of filming because of the holiday. And Robert and Natalie had hosted some friends for Thanksgiving. And that weekend, they also planned to sail away to Catalina Island. And Catalina Island is about 22 miles um, south of Los Angeles. Uh, we know Catalina Island from Step Brothers, the MFing Catalina Wine Mix and it was just a place that Natalie and Robert would sail their yacht to. Um, they would sail the Splendor there, and they would go there um, pretty often. It was kind of just their, their weekend spot, and it was a common weekend getaway for them. And they were excited um, to spend Thanksgiving weekend there, and they were looking forward to hosting Natalie's co-star, Christopher Walken. And it said that Natalie's daughter, Natasha, and her sister, Lana, they did not want her to go that weekend. They didn't want her to sail. Um, the weather was bad as it was late November and they just wanted her to stay home. But Natalie, she really, really wanted to go. So Robert Wagner, he had hired his usual captain of the Splendor, a man a man named Dennis DeVerne, uh, to take the group out for the weekend. And he was also in charge of provisioning the boat. So Dennis said when he would provision the boat, he was instructed to get a lot of alcohol. And Natalie and Robert, they were well known to really like to drink. They liked to have a good time and they would drink a lot. So when they he would provision the boat and get it ready for a weekend, 
he would get a case of wine and you know a case of wine there's 12 bottles in a case so this was the amount of wine for a weekend trip like a two-day trip along with several bottles of liquor um robert wagner really liked to drink scotch so the boat was just always fully stocked with alcohol and once the boat was ready the group was ready to set sail to Catalina. And uh, Dennis DeVerne said that the days leading up to the weekend trip, he called Natalie a few times and he tried to discourage her on going on this trip. He's like, the weather's not very good. It's supposed to be rainy. It's supposed to be really, really cold. It may not be worthwhile to even do this trip. Um, But Natalie just insisted on going. She said she was really excited to host Christopher Walken. And she told Dennis Severn that Christopher Walken's going to be here. I want to go through with this trip. So he said, okay, you know, he works for them. So even though Christopher Walken was present, it didn't necessarily mean that Robert Wagner cared for Christopher Walken. You know, it said that Robert was a little intimidated by Christopher. You know, Robert Wagner was in his 50s at this time. And here we have, you know, a young late 30s Christopher Walken present. And his wife seemed kind of enamored with him. And if you look up a young Christopher Walken. I mean, he's a really good looking guy. He is very striking. He has those piercing blue eyes. He has those lips. He has a very unique look. So a young Christopher Walken, I could see why someone would be kind of intimidated with him because he has a really mysterious, handsome look. So Robert Wagner wasn't loving the situation. And Dennis DeVerne said that Robert's insecurity was palpable. You could just feel it in the air that Robert was very, very insecure. So Dennis said that Robert was showing off the boat to Christopher. He was like showing every bell and whistle saying, this is my boat. Come and look at this. Like, this is my yacht and look how cool it is. And Christopher like didn't really care. He was just like, okay, like great, like nice boat. But Robert wanted him to know, like, I'm the man of this boat. This is mine and recognize me. So Dennis said Just the jealousy, like I said, you could just feel it in the air. Because for one, there had been kind of some tabloid rumors that Christopher and Natalie were having an affair on the movie set. And I think that happens all the time, but it's not great when that's your wife and you have to hear all of these rumors, whether they're true or not. So that really upset Robert Wagner. And there was like obvious tension between these two men. And so according to Dennis, there was some fighting on the boat between Christopher and Robert. It happened very, very quickly. By almost instantly when they got on the boat, there was a lot of tension. And I want to preface that I don't take everything Dennis says as like the word of God, but unfortunately, there was only four people on that boat and Natalie sadly cannot tell her story and Robert and Christopher have kept really quiet about all of this. So Dennis, unfortunately, is all we have to work with. You know, it's not much, but it's home. Um, (laughs) So the fighting began to intensify. And according to Dennis, Robert was acting so out of line that Natalie got so scared that she approached Dennis and was like, get me off this boat. Like, we need to get in that dinghy and please take me to shore. So he's like, Okay, like, let's go. So they go and they check into a hotel. They have two separate rooms, but they decide to stay in one room. And Dennis swears nothing happened, which, 
I don't think any of us thought that anything was going to happen. I mean, this woman dated Warren Beatty. She's not going to go after Dennis Deverne, but they go and they share a room together. But um, she is kind of spilling her guts. She's like, I'm so sick of this. I kind of um, want to just like get rid of him. I want to get a divorce from Robert. And she just wants to get the hell off the island. And she wants to vote herself off the island. She's over it. So he said he was stunned and she was just confiding all of this stuff to him. But, you know, after a good night's sleep and kind of sobering up, she said, I want to make this right. I don't want this entire weekend to be a wash. It's the holidays. Like, let's go back to the boat and let's go grocery shopping because she wanted to go home or she wanted to go to the boat and she wanted to make everyone just a nice breakfast, kind of a peace offering or kind of just like, let's start fresh. Let's just wipe the slate clean. Which, if this story is true, I just wonder what the hell Robert and Christopher were doing on that boat the entire time. Like, you know, I know men, they get over things very quickly. So maybe they just were on that boat drinking together and it was all well and fine. But it's just like so weird to think about that entire situation. But anyway, the next morning, Dennis and Natalie return to the boat. They want to start fresh, like I said. And Natalie cooks them a nice um, Spanish breakfast. So the day is going off well. And Christopher and Natalie, they're sharing some stories about their time filming Brainstorm. And everything seems to be going okay. Like they go to the island and, you know, they're at the they're at a restaurant, they're drinking, and Dennis and Robert, they're fishing, and they're just having a really, really nice time. So eventually the afternoon and goes into the evening and Dennis and Robert decide like, oh, let's go join Christopher and Natalie at the restaurant. So they're at the Harbor Reef restaurant and bar. And there are the four of them. They're just having fun. They're enjoying drinks. They're enjoying dinner. They're laughing. There's champagne. There's wine. They're having their own Catalina wine mixer at this restaurant. Like they're just having a really, really good time. And like I said, there is a lot of drinking involved. And but they're having fun. Dennis also said that Natalie and Christopher were just talking a lot. They were discussing scenes that they had filmed. They were just kind of giggling, sort of flirting. And after some time, Robert Wagner was like, let's get back to the boat. It's time to call it a night at this restaurant. Like, let's a nightcap on the boat. So it's said that they all kind of stumble back to the boat. I mean, like they're all pretty drunk. Like there's been multiple bottles of wine at this point consumed. So they're feeling no pain. And Dennis Severn said there was a decent amount of tension again once the group got back to the splendor. Robert was in the mood to fight. And Dennis says that Robert immediately zeroes in on Christopher. He's in just a jealous rage. And he says to Christopher, what are you trying to do? Blank my wife? And then smashes a bottle of wine to the ground. And it goes everywhere. Shards all over the the boat. And Dennis also says that Robert screamed, get off my effing boat. So he was very, very upset. And I don't know about wine bottles in the 1980s, um, but it's kind of hard to smash a wine bottle. I mean, they're pretty thick. So, I mean, there was a serious amount of rage and um, there had to be some serious force to smash that wine bottle. And Robert Wagner denies the wine bottle smashing, but 
He did say that there was an argument that night. He later admits in his memoir that there was an argument, but he says he didn't smash a bottle of wine. But all of this going on, Natalie's like, I'm over this. Like, I've got a good buzz going on and I don't want it being destroyed by you. So she's like, I'm going below deck. I'm going to my stateroom and I want to just, I want to go to sleep. Like this is enough is enough. So around 11.05, Robert, uh, 11.05 p.m. that night, uh, Robert Wagner goes into the stateroom and Natalie isn't there. He can't find Natalie anywhere on the boat. And he alerts Dennis Deverne and says that Natalie is missing. The dinghy is also missing. If you don't know what a dinghy is, it's um, a smaller boat on the side of a yacht that if you have your yacht kind of anchored out in the water and you want to go to shore, you'll take um, that smaller boat, that smaller dinghy out um, to the beach or out to the shore. Um, If you watch Below Deck, you'll see that a lot. Like they'll take the smaller boat out when um, the guests want to go to the beach. So they, the, the dinghy is um, completely gone. And Dennis Deverne says that Robert goes up to him and says, we can't find Natalie. I guess you better look for her. And Dennis Deverne is kind of like, oh shit, like what do we do now? And Dennis um, immediately asks Robert Wagner, um, should we call the Coast Guard? Like, That's pretty uh, normal to think when you're on a boat and it's dark, it's pitch black outside and there's somebody missing. You think, let's call the Coast Guard. And Robert Wagner says, no, 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 don't do that. And Dennis says, well, I have a searchlight on the boat. There's a searchlight. Should I put that on? And again, Robert Wagner sternly tells him no. And Dennis said he kind of got the vibe that Robert Wagner was kind of concerned about him and Natalie's image. Like, what if the press got out that they called the Coast Guard and Natalie was just out on someone else's boat or she was chilling um, on the shore? And now they have to explain that they got into this big fight. But it's just crazy to think about because if you were on a boat with somebody and it's your wife and she's not there and it's dark and you're in the middle of the water, like screw the image. Aren't you afraid? Like you don't have one millisecond to lose. So I think you would normally immediately want to call for help. But Robert Wagner was extremely stern about not doing any of that. And as his dutiful employee, Dennis agrees. Now, this is where I want to say Dennis is often characterized as the captain of the Splendor, but he wasn't really a captain. He was more of like the caretaker. If you've ever worked in maritime or if you yourself were in the Coast Guard or the Navy or worked on boats professionally, you know as a captain, you don't answer to Robert Wagner. You answer to the Coast Guard. And there are certain protocols you have to follow when you're a captain. So he wasn't like a certified licensed captain. Yes, he knew how to drive the boat, but he wasn't recognized uh, within, I guess, maritime laws because that's just not how it works. Like think about, like I said, below deck, like Captain Lee. Yes, these people chartered the, the yacht. And yes, you technically answer to them 
as a service standpoint, but the second safety gets compromised, they don't call the shots. You do as the captain. So Dennis Deverne, like I said, he's characterized as the captain, but he wasn't really a captain. He just drove Robert Wagner's boat at the end of the day. So, and Dennis himself says um, that he was also pretty drunk at this time. And again, captains, they don't do that. And I guess I'm harping on this because I kind of have a connection to it because I was a bartender on the tour boats in Chicago for many years during college. And even though we were like tour boats and in the tourism industry, we still were on one of the busiest rivers in the world. We were in the Chicago River, we were on Lake Michigan, so we answered to the Coast Guard. And those captains took it extremely seriously. And me as the bartender, I could not drink. Like I would sometimes bartend on my birthday because I needed to make money. And all of these people would be like, let me get you a shot. Like it's your birthday. I couldn't do that. Because if that boat were to crash and they test everybody and I have alcohol in my system, I could get everybody on that boat arrested. Like it's that you just don't play. So I guess that's kind of why I'm harping on the fact that like Dennis wasn't a captain and he was, like I said, just Robert Wagner's employee. So when Robert Wagner is telling Dennis that he can't do something, Dennis agrees because he's kind of um, off the books at this point. And Robert Wagner is basically telling Dennis to just chill out. He has a bottle of scotch cracked open and he says, let's have a drink. Now, I don't know about you, but this is like such concerning behavior for someone whose wife is missing at night on open water and you just want to have a drink. Even Dennis Deverne was like, that is literally the last thing I want to do right now. And eventually 1.30 a.m. rolls around and finally Robert Wagner is beginning to show concern. And he tells Dennis Severn, let's alert uh, the harbor master. Again, this is not the Coast Guard. Again, if somebody was missing on open water, you want to call the Coast Guard, the people who devote their lives to rescuing people on water. So um, he alerts the harbor master that Natalie is missing. And the harbor master is is, um, essentially the kind of official in charge of the harbor, of making sure that everyone's following the rules on the harbor. You know, think about it. Like it was nighttime, your wife is missing. You'd again want to call in the big guns, not essentially the lifeguard. It's just it's I don't know why you would immediately call the harbor master and not the Coast Guard. So the harbor master comes out. He has a diver check underneath the boat for Natalie. They dive underneath the yacht and they can't find anything, nothing. I mean, there's no trace of Natalie. And I mean, think about it. You're on open water and it's dark. Like there is nothing scarier than open water in the dark. Like it is so terrifyingly dark. You cannot see a thing. It's just thinking about it gives me chills. It's so scary. So there's no trace of Natalie. So they they come up short and it isn't until 5 a.m. the next morning. So six solid hours pass since Robert Wagner has noticed Natalie is not on the boat. And finally, they call the Coast Guard. 
So they go in with the big guns, they get the boats, they get the helicopter to scale the island. And it isn't long until one of the Coast Guard officers sees something red floating in the water. It was only about a two and a half hour search before um, they found something. And the LA County rescue captain is alerted. He goes to the area and sure enough, it's Natalie Wood um, in her red nightgown. And they pull her out of the water. (sighs) So they pull her body out of the water and onto the boat. And that's where they pronounce Natalie Wood dead. And they said that she had died quickly after uh, midnight. So she wasn't in the water very long until she passed away. So um, authorities go back to the boat and they tell Robert Wagner um, and the rest of the men that Natalie had died. And Natalie was only 43 years old at the time. So Robert Wagner and the rest of the men are obviously devastated. It's so horrifying that the night ended that way. And the police tell Robert Wagner that they have their chopper. And immediately Robert Wagner and Christopher Walken get into the helicopter and off the island back to Los Angeles. So this leaves Dennis DeVern to identify Natalie's body. And don't get me wrong, everyone knows that it's Natalie Wood, but it's procedure. You have to go and you have to identify the body. So Robert refuses to do this. He gets on the helicopter. He he skips town. And Dennis has to, unfortunately, identify Natalie. And I know that in times of extreme grief, people can make really questionable decisions. But I still think it's just very suspect For them, I don't know, for them to just leave. I just think like if it were my loved one, obviously I would be absolutely devastated, but I wouldn't leave them. I would just want to make sure, I don't know, I guess I would just want to make sure they were okay or I don't know. I just would not leave. I would not leave them, especially I wouldn't make the skipper of my boat go and identify her. It just seems very, very strange behavior to me. But like I said, I don't want to be exceptionally judgy about it because it's a huge tragedy and people act out of character. But again, it's just suspect behavior looking back at it. And Natalie's death is almost immediately ruled an accident. Her cause of death is accidental drowning and hypothermia. They said the water was in the 60s um, when, when she fell in. So it was very, very cold. And Dr. Thomas Noguchi, he's the coroner. And he said that this is not a homicide. This isn't a suicide. This is merely a horrible accident. Robert Wagner isn't even a thought in investigators' minds of being a suspect. And investigators eventually conclude that Natalie must have went to her stateroom. The dinghy wasn't tied up all the way, so it just kept banging against the boat, banging against the boat and waking her up. And she was annoyed, so she's like, oh, I'm going to go out to the dock, tie up the dinghy, and um, tie it up more securely so it doesn't bang against the boat. And while she's doing that, they conclude that she slipped, hit her head, and fell in the water. And it was just a freak accident that unfortunately cost her her life. And immediately Dennis DeVern doesn't buy this. 
He said in the six years that he worked on the boat, Natalie never once tied up the dinghy. Never. Like she, Dennis Severn was the caretaker of the boat. If you had hired someone to do those tasks, you're not going to do that. Especially like, why would a woman, when it's freezing, you're in your nightgown, you're kind of drunk, you're not going to go out and tie up the dinghy, at least in my mind. It just, it doesn't make sense. Yes, like I said, Natalie was very drunk. She was a 0.14. And yes, it's very drunk. That's way over the legal limit. But I just, I wouldn't want to do that when I was drunk. When you're drunk, you just want to kind of be inside, especially when you're winding down. You're not going to go out in the freezing cold weather and tie up some dinghy. It just, it doesn't make sense to me. And it doesn't make sense to a lot of people. And all three men told authorities that they didn't call for help right away because they thought Natalie took the dinghy to go ashore that she was sick of the fighting. So she's like, I'm getting out of here. Similar to what she and Dennis Severn did the night before. But again, I don't think this would ever happen because Natalie was so openly terrified of water. Even a year prior, she was on that show Biography and she openly talks about how she's terrified of open water, especially terrified of dark open water. I mean, like I said, it's absolutely horrifying. So I don't know about you, but when you're drunk, that really isn't a time that you want to face your worst fear. I'm very afraid of heights. Like I'm just terrified of heights. So if I'm drunk after a few glasses of wine, I'm not thinking like, let's go, I'm going to face my fear. Let's go to the top of the Sears Tower and I'm just going to take it all in. No, that is literally the last thing that I want to do. So no way is Natalie going to take the dinghy out by herself, a little boat on rough waters, stormy weather at the middle of the night and go ashore by herself. And especially your husband is going to know that you have a really, really intense fear of open water. So why would he think that she was going to do that? Because Coast Guards say that when they interviewed Robert Wagner, they asked, why did it take you so long to call us? He said that he thought Natalie took the dinghy to go hang out on another boat because that was, quote, just the type of woman that she is. It's like, what? Like a woman that's so out of character, she would never sail by herself. She would never go on water by herself, especially at night. It's terrifying. And again, like I said, she was very publicly open about this fear. And it's crazy because this was something that kind of was chilling a little bit. Um, my phone, speaking of things that are scary, my phone, I think, knows that I've been researching Natalie Wood and watching a lot of stuff on Natalie Wood lately because um, my my TikTok algorithm has been putting stuff with Natalie Wood and one of the clips of her talking about being afraid of open water showed up. And one of the comments said, never tell somebody your worst fear. And I was like, oh, like that comment, that comment I just thought was was really creepy. But again, it's just... It's just not something she would do, and it's not something that she would do when it's freezing and she's only wearing a nightgown. Does not make sense to me. So Dennis 
later said that he lied to authorities with this story because Robert Wagner got him Chris and Christopher Walken, all three of them, and said, we need to get our story straight. So the story was... We didn't think anything of it because we thought Natalie took the dinghy to go somewhere else. We thought she took it to go to shore. So that's why we didn't call. And Dennis eventually said that just just wasn't the case because eventually Dennis, his conscience got to him. And Lana Wood, uh, Natalie's sister, said during the 90s, Dennis would often call her and you could tell Dennis had something to drink and he would call her pretty drunk and he'd be crying and he just would say, this just doesn't sit well with me. Something is just, um, you know, I lied. This doesn't sit well with my conscience and there's something else that happened on that boat. I know something else happened. I don't know, but I was told by Robert Wagner to tell a certain story and to essentially help him cover it up. You know, to this day, nobody knows exactly what happened. Dennis DeVerne, he did help reopen the case in 2011 with new and emerging evidence. But like I said, I kind of, I mean, I don't think, I take what Dennis DeVerne says I don't want to say with a grain of salt, but sort of with a grain of salt. I don't think he's 100% truthful, but I don't think he's 100% untruthful because I know he had a guilty conscience, but he also collaborated with tell-all books. He also sold stories to tabloids. So this wasn't just him relieving his conscience. This was also him looking for a check. So it kind of gives me pause because... You know, we're pretty street smart here on the Diving Board Podcast. We've been around the block. We know people lie. Think about the Black Dahlia episode. Like, there's so many hundreds of false confessions about that. People people lie. So I just want to take it lightly. But I do credit Dennis Severn as being a major part of reopening this case because for 30 years, nobody said anything. And in 2011, they reopened it. And when you look at the new evidence, it seems like a lot was covered up. And it said that Thomas Noguchi, um, Dr. Thomas Noguchi, who was the, uh, Natalie Wood's coroner, they said he was very enamored with fame. He was very proud that he was kind of known as the, this is very macabre, but the fact that he was known as the coroner to the stars. Um, because he had examined Marilyn Monroe, Natalie Wood, Janis Joplin, like really iconic people who had passed away. And he would just never think that um, Robert Wagner would do anything like that. So he didn't even look into that theory and conduct a thorough investigation. And uh, there's just so much to that autopsy when they reopened it that There was so much that just wasn't looked into because a lot of the police investigators looked at Natalie Wood's bruises and the location and the type of bruises they would. They said it looked like she was the victim of an assault. And I'm going to read you an excerpt that was in an article um, in Vanity Fair a few years ago. And this is an excerpt by somebody named Dr. Michael Franco. And Dr. Michael Franco worked in the LA coroner's office with um, Dr. Noguchi. So I'm going to read it to you right now. Dr. Michael Franco may be able to provide a missing link, 
Franco, a family medicine specialist in Los Angeles, was an intern at the L.A. coroner's office when Natalie Wood's body was flown to Los Angeles County. As a volunteer intern in 1981, he wasn't listed as a coroner's employee and therefore would not have been questioned. Franco observed what he is certain is a critical evidence on Natalie's body that establishes her death was a homicide. For 40 years, Franco has kept silent, not wanting to be pulled into a media circus. After decades of reflection and my persuasion, he decided that coming forward was the right thing to do. What Franco observed and found suspicious were the bruises on Natalie's anterior thighs and shins, bruises he described as friction burns. He told me what struck him as wrong. I remember the striations were in the opposite direction of somebody trying to get onto a boat. It was almost like somebody being pushed off. And because of the significant amount of the bruising in the lower anterior thighs and shins, that's what caught my attention. She would have to have been pushed forcefully off, or there was a force that was pulling her off, or something. The amount of noticeable bruising to the thigh shouldn't have been there. Franco took it up with Dr. Noguchi. I mentioned to him the abrasions on Natalie. I told him I was having trouble understanding them. I said that there seemed to be in the opposite direction of what one would expect as to her cause of death. I remember when I told him who I was, he hesitantly stopped doing what he was doing, looked up at me, nodded his head, didn't say anything, and then he continued doing what he'd been doing. What he said was, some things are best left unsaid. Noguchi's admission momentarily confused Franco. I wasn't sure what that meant initially, so I stood there. Noguchi, he came to believe, was acknowledging a cover-up in the coroner's office. However it was written up, that's all you need to know, Noguchi went on to say, according to Franco. Franco stood there, staring at him. Again, he had his head down and wasn't looking at me, and he wasn't saying anything. And I thought, this is my cue to step back. So I played with that for the rest of my life. Like, that is so heavy. Like, Noguchi, it really sounds like there was evidence that he was covering up and that there's certain bruises on Natalie that look like she was hurt, like she was manhandled. She was a victim of an assault before she was pushed off of the boat. I don't know. There's just so much to this that makes it seem like Robert Wagner was given kind of a special treatment in this. The fact that he was never once thought of as even a suspect during this or there was an investigation. It's just interesting when you look back just what powerful men got away with. It really kind of seems up until the Me Too movement, men in Hollywood or just powerful men they could get away with, well, a murder. Like they could get away with so, so much. And people say nowadays with all the true crime podcasts and everything, everybody wants to solve a crime. Detectives, they want to get in. They want to get in the nitty gritty and get their hands dirty and solve a crime. But people said, detectives said in the 80s and the 90s, not many people wanted to do that. They didn't want to really just devote their lives to solving something. So if they could figure out a logical explanation, they kind of said, that's it. And we're not going further, especially when it involved a powerful, famous male movie star. 
they didn't even want him to think a thought in their mind that Robert Wagner would do this. So I think a lot of people may have been on his side to cover it up. I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but my fellow American history buffs, my fellow old souls and effing weirdos, who was um, the president in 1981? Ronald Reagan. What did Ronald Reagan do for a living before he was a politician? He was an actor. Who also was an actor? Robert Wagner. Who was friends? Robert Wagner and Ronald Reagan. So I'm not saying, but I'm saying. <laughs> like There could have definitely been something going on there. I mean, you could have had at the very top someone covering it up. And if it was going to be anyone, it would be Ronald Reagan. I, I won't uh, go into Ronald Reagan. That'll be the really scary moment of this podcast when I go really off the rails but um, <laughs> and become completely unhinged. So we'll just leave that there. But it just kind of seems like there was a lot on Robert Wagner's side when it came to all of this. And like I said, Dennis Deverne opened the case in 2011, and the new evidence was presented. And in 2018, Robert Wagner was named by investigators as a person of interest. Now, a person of interest isn't necessarily a suspect, but this is the most that we've ever gotten that people think that Robert Wagner could have been involved. So it was something. But unfortunately, last year, all of their evidence, they said everything that they explored, it just kept leading them to a dead end. And the case has gone cold again. So it's just, I don't know, we may never know what exactly happened on that boat, because the Splendor, the Splendor is destroyed now. They destroyed it several years back. And we just, we may never know. I mean, Robert Wagner is in his 90s now. Christopher Walken is in his 80s. You don't know what's going to happen in the next near future, the next few years. People tend to confess things on their deathbed. So something could happen, something may not. Maybe they take those secrets to the grave. Because, I mean, they haven't talked about this in years. Robert Wagner, like I said, vehemently denies it all. Christopher Walken has talked to the authorities, but he only talked to them if it was promised that it would be confidential and the authorities have lived up to their end of the bargain. So they've never released what Christopher Walken has said. But I don't know, there's just something... There's something there. Do I think there's more to the story? Yes or hell yes. Like there's something. They know more. Christopher Walken knows more. Robert Wagner knows more. There's just something more to this story. I'm not saying that Robert Wagner was the person who did it necessarily, but there's more. There's there's more layers to what this is. What we're given is not um, all there is. And to get kind of spooky, Zach Bagans in his museum, he has an entire Natalie Wood room. He has a lot of artifacts that he bought from Dennis Deverne um, from The Splendor. And this is also, like I said, why sometimes I take Dennis Deverne as a grain of salt because I won't lie, he's capitalized on this. He has made money. So I do take it, I'm, I tread lightly with it. But I, like I said, I don't think he's 100% untruthful. Um, but Zach Bacon's has a lot of artifacts from that room. And 
it's one of the most highly active rooms in his entire museum that things happen in there. He has the candles. He has so much from the from the boat. A lot of stuff happens in that room that's not explained. Things will fall randomly. Pictures that are solid on the wall will just suddenly come off. There's a lot of energy going on in that room. And it's interesting because during quarantine, uh, Zach Bagans um, did a episode on ghost adventures of his museum. And he put a mannequin in the Natalie Wood room. And that same night, he got an email from Dennis Deverne saying that his dresser slid directly across the other side of the room and nothing had ever happened like that before. And he emailed him and said, I think it's Natalie. I think it's Natalie trying to say something. And it's funny because he was doing an investigation in that room and he hadn't talked to Dennis Deverne in years. And that very same night, Dennis Deverne messaged him saying that. So kind of scary. Like that's actually really creepy when I say it out loud. But it's I think Natalie is is trying to say something. And like I said, I think there's way more to this story. And that's why I think it's important to keep telling this story because there's an injustice. And I don't want these stories to be forgotten because I think there's there's still more to tell. Like I said, it's a big injustice for Natalie Wood. And I hope one day in our lifetimes we do find out more, especially for Natalie Wood's family, for her children, and especially her sister, who has really been instrumental um, in finding out more about the case. To this day, she's will participate in any type of investigation, and I totally understand that like if that were my sister I would never stop it's like you just you won't stop until you have your answers so my heart goes out to them I don't know how people do true crime podcasts all the time like I'm so empathetic that it's like I would be so sad every every time I recorded so but I just uh you know my heart goes out I hope wherever Natalie Wood is she is at peace and just I hope we find out eventually what happened because there is something more that that went down so justice justice for natalie wood maybe maybe in the next coming years some big bombshell i hope so because she she really deserves it and her family deserves it but on that note that's the scary unsolved mystery of natalie wood um, like I said, maybe we'll get more to this story. But in the meantime, we just wish Natalie Wood peace wherever she may be. But we where, uh, we just wish Natalie Wood peace wherever she may be. Um, but on that note, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Diving Board Halloween. It was definitely unsettling and spooky and scary and definitely a call for justice. So just all of that wrapped into one, which where can, what other podcast can you get that on except Diving Board Halloween? So thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, if you learned something, I would so appreciate appreciate if you rated me five stars. I also would appreciate if you followed me on the podcast. You'll know about the episodes before everybody else. And there are some episodes like this one I probably won't be promoting on the Instagram. So you'll only know about it if you're following. And um, 
And speaking of the Instagram, if you'd like to join our family over there, I would love to have you diving board pod. And of course, that is B-O-R-E-D. And I have a lot of exciting episodes coming up. I'm so excited to get into it. So I will see you very, very soon. But until then, thank you so much and take care, everyone.